I can start it off, but I don't think I've actually ever pronounced your last name, Anthony. One of my favorite things is hearing people attempt it. It's Akamazo. If you want to give it a little bit of an Italian flair, Akamazo. Welcome to the show, Anthony Akamazo and Eric Goldman from Sequin. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. I've already looked into Sequin a little bit. I've played around with the documentation. I've played around with the product. It's really exciting what you're doing. This podcast is going to go that I already know the product. I understand it. And Anthony, for once, has no clue on how anything works. So he's going to be asking the stupid questions this time and looking like the idiot. Total noob here, yep. Before we get into the product, we always like to ask where you guys learned to code, how long you've been coding for, because it's a nice way to introduce an icebreak. I grew up always building computers. Like I would install Linux operating systems for fun. I cracked the Mac operating system the moment they moved to Intel, so I could install it on my desktop PC. But no one ever told me I could code and that that would be a good career path for me. I actually studied electrical engineering in college. So the extent of my programming was in Verilog, if you can call it that. It wasn't until after I graduated that I picked up Ruby, Ruby on Rails, and was just so enamored with rapid prototyping, web application development, and startups that I then got my first entry-level programming job. And then I've been programming ever since. For me, I'm relatively new to coding. In college, I studied economics. We had some required computer science courses, C++ and R, to properly handle statistical sets of data. I didn't really do too much coding other than I got really good marks in those courses. Then I went into product, and I was one of those product managers that had the deep-held belief that I didn't need to understand how to code to properly help manage the product or work with my engineering counterparts. And boy, have has my opinion of that changed since learning to code. So when I started working with Anthony, right during the pandemic, it was like, this is the time to learn to code. And so with some mentorship from Anthony and on the side of our business, I picked up JavaScript and React and have been enamored ever since. So now I get the pleasure of coding every day, a little bit, at least here and there, depending on what our customers need. So I'm fresh to it. I believe I told Eric, hey, you know, this is going to be a fun, enjoyable ride no matter what. But if we're building a dev tools company, you're going to enjoy it a lot more if you know how to code. I think I was right. Yeah, it'd be like having a whole staff of like Spanish speakers and being like, I don't speak Spanish, but I can manage them fine, right? Like, what's the problem? Yeah. I mean, I think when I didn't understand how to code and I worked, I've worked in building software products for a long time, it was always enjoyable to like dig into it. And I had enough understanding of generally how systems work together and I had a rough understanding, but really being able to participate and get in there and understand what's going on. I'm a complete convert on that being a core competency for anyone working with development and shipping great products. It just makes it so much more fun. The opportunities of what can be built are so much more apparent. I love it. You're looking at a, you know, a little toddler coder over here, but I'm, I'm getting it there. I think you've almost took the same path as me, but five, six years later, because when I moved to JavaScript, I moved straight into React. And it's only recently moving out of React. I'm like, what is React and what is not React? And that is such a interesting abstraction to learn about if you've just jump straight into React, as in what can vanilla JS do by itself is such a interesting 
point as in that's what Vue and Svelte do so well like binding for on clicks is totally different in React and if you're so used to that abstraction when you come away from it you're like how do I do it now it just doesn't work like it does even for seasoned developers it's such a weird line because you have these two different runtimes you have the browser runtime and then you have the node runtime the node runtime took a lot of those browser paradigms like set time out and just copied them into its own runtime. And so the, the lines and borders are super blurry. You have React, you have the DOM, the browser environment and Node. There's enough shared between them that you get kind of lulled into a sense of unification and then you find yourself in a weird corner case where they're not the same. I already know the answer, but what is Sequin built with? What tools, what frameworks? We use Elixir Phoenix on the back end and then React single page app for the front end. And a lot of Postgres, as you can imagine. It sounds like Superbase. That's a very similar stack to them. Very cool. You don't use Next or do you use Next? I thought you used Next for your SBA. Yeah, we use it for our docs, marketing page. I think our main single page app though is not Next. Oh, interesting. We should probably talk about what is Sequin before we start talking about all their tech and, and all this stuff. So why don't we get a, a high level description of what is Sequin? With Sequin, developers log into our dashboard. They can select the services that they integrate with, like Stripe, Shopify, Twilio. And in just a couple clicks, we begin a sync to their production database of all the data from that API. And we keep it in sync in real time. So instead of having to go and make HTTP requests, deal with authentication, pagination, sorting, filtering to get the data that you want from these APIs, you can just read from your production database using SQL or your favorite ORM instead. This is such an interesting pitch for me because I work at a company called StepZen, which is slightly similar, but not exactly the same pitch where we're giving you an API gateway into a whole bunch of different data sources. Whereas you're giving like a database that's like aggregating all the data sources. So it's like, you're kind of like the back of the back end and we're like the front of the back end. So the point you're kind of solving is not necessarily like a unified, well, it's, it is both a unified access point into the data, but it sounds like it's also about like backups and just like having all the data in one place and like audits. Is that like kind of also the pitch here? That's definitely a big part of it. I think, you know, in general, we think SQL is a lingua franca. It is a standard. The Postgres database is a standard format that people are already familiar with. HTTP APIs can only hope to approach SQL in terms of expressibility and power with coring for the data that you want. If an API doesn't let you sort by created at ascending as opposed to descending your host, and you have to paginate all the way through to get the first event from that API. But if it's in a database, it's two words and boom, you've just flipped the sort. For us, we just see putting the data into the database as sort of being de facto a normalization standardization of that data. I've played around with both products. To me, they both tackle the use case of, say, a question of, I want to normalize and standardize my Stripe data, for example. Both platforms can do that, but they do it in completely different methods. StepZen unifies it into a simple GraphQL API that then you don't need to go through Stripe's APIs. And Sequin backs it all up to your database, and then you can call it through tools like Prisma. It is that thing of like, you may find that one choice will be better than the other choice, depending on your scenarios. But it's a really interesting thing 
to know that there's now multiple choices to tackle the same end goals that will give you such a different outcome on how you handle your data, what layer the data is coming from, how deep the data is accessible. So it's really, really interesting. And it's something that I've looked at myself at my company Everfund and I can see solutions for both at two different levels. It's really, really exciting industry that, as you said, you think it's a unique new idea. And I would completely agree. It turns, say, your Stripe data on top of its head, as in I no longer has to call Stripe's APIs. I can just do a join or find it however I need to find it and then handle everything else myself. What's really, really exciting about this is obviously because it's just Postgres that you're spitting all out to, you could use tools like Prisma. I've used Sequin with Prisma and also Redwood, one of these FS Jam frameworks. The real power that I saw was how fast that you can go from not having anything, any of your Stripe data, to I've connected my production database, I've added in my Prisma ORM file, just like that, data's moving over, imported, and you have all that data, you run your generators through Redwood, like that, you can literally just call all that data that you used to have to go through the Stripe API to get, is now just fully accessible through a GraphQL endpoint. When I used it and I was testing it, I found out it unlocked new ways of fetching the data because obviously with GraphQL and Redwood, you can just carry on your waterfall as deep as you want to find the data that you want through any relation. And doing that found it so much easier to find core information points that were actually a lot harder to find out through just going through the Stripe API because sometimes you felt like you were pull once and then you'd get your answer and then go, okay, now I need to pull again to get the answer from that one, then pull again to get the answer for that one. But because this is obviously mixing technologies of like Redwood and Sequin and Prisma, you can just waterfall it all the way down to get the answer you need in one GraphQL statement. So to me, Sequin's a really, really powerful tool and I really recommend people give it a go. Obviously, I've just mentioned it supports Stripe, but what else does it support? I want to actually comment on, because you said some a lot right there that we're super engaged with and just glad to hear about your experience. You know, if you think about it from first principles, we kind of thought, well, why does this API exist in the first place? There's basically two main reasons. The first one is security, right? In a world of perfect trust, Stripe would say, hey, here's a database user for our production Stripe database. Just don't look at anyone else's data but your own, but have at it, right? They would just kind of let you go in there and query and get the data that you wanted. That's one reason that we have APIs is to control access. And the second reason is as an abstraction layer, so that if they change the name of a column or a table, they don't have to break all the integrations with that API. We realized that we could pull that off with a database instead, which is pretty exciting. But now when Stripe builds that API, HTTP can only ever approach SQL in terms of expressibility and queryability. So they have to basically think about what the most common use cases to query the data will look like, and then recreate those use cases as REST endpoints with various query parameters. But it's never going to be as complete. And as you were discovering, Chris, they can't predict all of the use cases for how you might want to query data for your startup. So you're going to have these access patterns, especially as your integration grows and gets bigger and bigger, that are hard for them to anticipate or support. And that's where having it all in SQL just unlocks all of those new ways to query the data as you were describing. As far as which platforms we support right now in production, Stripe 
Airtable, Twilio, and Close, the CRM with Shopify and a closed alpha right now. The Airtable one, I'm kind of curious about because this is one that I had never used Airtable before I started working at StepZen and it's used in a lot of example apps and a lot of people at the company are very into it. I'd always known it was like fairly well known, like big deal type thing because it's a database, but not exactly because it's like a database, like a really, really, really nice API on top, I think is kind of the idea. But when you go to your pricing page, you have two options. You have the pro and enterprise, and then you have like an Airtable option completely separately. So it seems like Airtable has kind of like a privileged position here compared to the other connectors. So first, let's define Airtable for our listeners. What is it if they've never heard it all? And then like, why is it such a big deal? Why developers love it? Why have you invested so heavily in it? Airtable absolutely has a special place in our company's history. It's the first platform we integrated with What Airtable is, for those that don't know, is it's basically a database, a relational database with the niceties of a spreadsheet interface. It basically takes Excel VLOOK lookup and makes it a first citizen feature where you can automatically create relationships between tables, which for those of us as developers understand is just a nice relational database. It's incredibly popular at companies of all sizes because it allows you to do and organize almost any task or workflow that you'd otherwise do across hundreds of Google Sheets you can do in one Airtable base. We launched on Airtable because it actually does have a fantastic API. You can access all your data in there, but if you go into the docs, If you're going to be doing heavy reads from Airtable, they encourage you to do a caching layer because there's a five query per second limit. It's very easy to get rate limited and not be able to pull out all the data you need. We saw Airtable has kind of the perfect prototyping platform. We had actually, Anthony and I had worked on a charity that used Airtable as its primary backend. And you really quickly began to hit this throttling as a developer where you knew that all of your non-technical teams, operations, people working with volunteer organization could easily work with all the data. But as a developer, we were quickly kind of hitting the limit of what we could build on top of it. You go into that community and the Airtable community is fantastic. And you just saw all these requests of, hey, could I use SQL? to query this data? Could I get this into my database? Can I work with it in real time? And we shared the same pain point and we had the same hypothesis, which is this data should just be in a database. So we started with Airtable and we were delighted with how quickly the Airtable community picked up the databases, started working with it. And all sorts of amazing companies came out of the woodwork that we had no idea were using Airtable or were using Airtable in such a way that their entire business ran on it as their primary data source. It was really surprising. As we expanded, we knew that we wanted to do more than just Airtable. We wanted to service every API. But Airtable's API is really unique compared to Stripe or Twilio's. From a business perspective right now, it just didn't make sense to price Stripe the same way that you would price Airtable for a myriad of reasons. One being that the data volumes are dramatically different between Airtable and Stripe. Stripe can have millions and millions of rows of data. You can have thousands of transactions a day, Chris, as you launch like a big charity campaign. Airtable maxes out at 100,000 records. Stripe has an events based API and system. So we can really integrate in a pretty smooth way. Airtable requires polling. They don't provide any webhooks or notifications that a seller record has been changed. So both from like an architectural perspective and just from a business perspective of of actually how these platforms are used and consumed by developers, we split them up for now to make it really easy for our customers to just adopt and start working with their data without needing to think about the complexities of data volumes or anything like that yet. 
One of the big things we've been speaking about is your data, instead of using the API, is now stored in your database. So what does that unlock? What abilities can you now do with that data? When we sync to your Postgres database, we really think that we're giving you a really powerful primitive that contains all your data in a standardized, approachable way that isn't standardized by our unique definition. It's standardized by the protocols of Postgres. What it unlocks is instant accessibility of all your data, which I think really changes the adoption curve of platforms. You quickly get to their tutorial like, okay, I'm running a payment through Stripe. We rapidly take you to, I'm getting a payment processed in Stripe and I'm showing the customer their invoice and I'm showing them their receipt and I can allow them to do a refund right away. And that instant accessibility of all your data in a local database really changes the way we're seeing developers adopt platforms and accelerate the way that they actually build really cool things on it. That transactional use case is the thing that makes us most excited, is just seeing developers build features that their customers can use all on a really complicated platform like Stripe or Twilio in a much faster time frame. But once all the data is in your database, you also unlock all sorts of other downstream use cases. It's all in your database, so pooling BI and analytics out of that database, much easier. Building internal tooling on that data, like simple internal CRUD apps, much easier with Postgres. What we're really excited about and beginning to focus on is that full developer lifecycle of how an entire team can work on an API and test and build and deploy much more elegant, interesting, cool features without all the like bottlenecks of kind of having to work through an API layer first. That database is really something every developer has been working with. And by putting all the data in that database, you just unlock all the use cases they've already been familiar with from a database. It's cool how you have docs for actually showing how to hook up Prisma, because as you're saying here, it gives you a SQL interface, and that is really great Like if you know SQL, but some devs, they either haven't learned it yet or they have no interest in learning it. I think it's a, it's a useful skill, so I would recommend most devs kind of bone up on some SQL if they can, but giving that ORM layer can be super useful. And so I'm seeing some Prisma examples. Are there other ORMs that you think are good to use, or do you push people towards using Prisma, or is it just because you wanted some example and that seemed like the most popular one to do? Like, What was the kind of decision making around the ORM layer? We definitely want to support and be ready to support ORMs in every language because you're right, for most developers, the way that they interact with their data in a database is through an ORM. We chose Prisma to showcase in large part because a lot of our customers right now are using Prisma and it's a really great ORM. You could say it's the best ORM currently today, or is it? I don't know. So you have a lot of examples in your developer documentation. And as you were saying, they all show how to build these business intelligent tools. And I'm pretty sure some of them are without even using a line of code, as long as you have a database. There was something really interesting I came across. What happens if I need to wait for some data? How do I know that Sequin has put the data that I need in my database? Say I'm doing something transactional like a checkout. I obviously need to wait somehow. So how does Sequin handle that? This is a key use case. We call it the read after write use case, which is very common, which is, let's say that we're working with Stripe and a customer changes their credit card on file. So what does that look like in the code? Well, you make a call to Stripe to update 
the credit card. And then hopefully you just re-render your React app and you hydrate the React app with select star in, from your database. But there's a race condition there. You wrote to Stripe and then there might be some delay before we sync that data to your database. We're syncing data every 500 milliseconds. So it's a small delay, but there's still that race condition. So we have what we call the wait endpoint, which you can call at any time. When you call it, we just ensure that your database is up to date before returning a 200. So now this workflow will be call Stripe with this post or put request, call sequence wait endpoint, and then after that, you can confidently read from your database and know that that data will be up to date. So this is how we control for those race conditions around the fact that you're reading from a database, but writing to an API. It's such an interesting circle that you need to understand is I'm always going to, well, I wouldn't say always because future products, potentially, although I know, I'm always going to write for the Stripe API, but I necessarily never have to read the Stripe API anymore because I've got all the data in my database. It was that moment of I've put in them card details and I've sent it off to Stripe expecting a re-render of your React page. But what happens if Stripe returns and says, yep, we've done the purchase. And then you call your Stripe API and it returns something that says purchasing complete when actually it was complete. It just re-rendered too early. So the wait command, well, it isn't a command, it's a endpoint, is super useful for that. One key thing that we often get asked, you know, right now we do focus on that one-way data flow. So syncing from the API to your database. And part of the reason we're focused there is we think that reading from APIs and writing to APIs, they often get conflated, but they're actually super different problems, right? So for reading, the question is things like rate limits, pagination, query parameters, but writing its validation and retries. They have very different problems and designs that you need to do. So we're focused right now on reads because uh, we think that that is a uniquely hard problem and that we can make it extremely easy by putting it in your database. And for writes, you still write to the main provider. The main reason being that you want to go through their validation stack to make sure that that credit card that the customer entered is actually valid, as opposed to writing to your database and then having to figure out later if that transaction was valid. So that's kind of the data flow right now. Read from your database, but write to the API, call that wait endpoint, and then you'll know that when you do that next read, the data will be up to date. What about unique data, as in data that's never been queried before, or, you know, I'm trying to find an address? We wouldn't expect Sequin to save every address in the world. Is there a solution for that kind of more transactional data searching? Or is that still an open book of something you will tackle, will not tackle? So you mean in terms of like a query path that is completely outside the standard API paths? What I mean is you're using it as a tool. So when we say it's an abstraction layer on third-party APIs. It's not an abstraction layer on every API because some APIs, it wouldn't make sense to store all things in a database. Like, for example, a search address finder that's very transactional, very unique. I'm using all the wrong words, obviously. But do you have plans on how to integrate them kind of tools as a abstraction layer above? Or is that something that you're going to just tent post and put your flag on the hill and say that kind of API we're not going to tackle? 
That's a great question. We haven't thought a lot about those APIs that have those humongous I think you're talking about something like Easy Post or Easy Street, the address lookup, right? Yeah, I think those we would imagine probably keep as remote procedure calls, but we haven't thought too much about that. I was curious to get into the pricing because this is a rare company we have that does not have a free tier, it looks like. And whether something is pricey or not is an arbitrary question. It's this question of like, what is the value you're providing? So I think it's totally valid for a company to charge lots and lots of money for their product if they're offering lots and lots of value. So I'd be curious, what is the pricing structure? And then how do you make the pitch for why that is worth the developer to invest that into this product? Yeah, the free tier, we hope to bring it back. It's really just, we're super early. And from a product pricing perspective, we started with what was easiest, which is a flat price, but we're introducing things pretty soon, which will allow for incremental adoption. Instead of adopting the whole Stripe API all at once, you can maybe select just a couple of sub tables or just the most recent data. And then that would qualify for a new free tier. So it's coming. The free tier is coming back. It's coming back soon. That's great to hear. What does the next six months look like? You know, are we going to see much improvement on Airtable and Stripe? Or are we going to see more APIs being added? How do you see the next six months going? The feature we're most excited about that we're working on right now is an events system. Imagine we are able to track all changes to all the APIs that you sync to your database using Postgres triggers. And then we can use those changes to call callback functions in your code base. So sort of like a durable webhooks system. So as opposed to having you know to set up a, a web server that can never go down, that will listen to all the webhooks from these APIs. And some of these APIs don't support webhooks like Airtable. Instead, Sequin can generate an event stream for you and then we'll pair that with client-side libraries in your language, like Node, that will allow you to set up callback functions. For example, every time a Stripe customer invoice is created or updated, call this block of code with that data so that I can act on it, send that data to another API, or you know, insert it into a table in my own database. That's one. The other, as Eric mentioned earlier, is really covering the full life cycle of adopting an API integration. So what does it look like when you want to develop with Sequence? You're doing this locally or with a local database. We don't have a great answer to that. Or what does it look like when you want to write automated tests on top of the API integration? Answering those questions and coming up with great solutions for them so that you just have an easy path for that full adoption cycle is going to be key for us. Your first potential product, is that more like a webhook replacement tool as more like a custom event-based webhooks? Because that's the one thing that I can say Stripe does really, really well. They're webhooks and they're things that they can trigger custom code on. But where I think that webhook solution is always let down is in the actual implementation in the client. Sometimes it's a bit too open as like, oh, you need to sign the webhook. But apart from that, we leave that all up to you. And we've seen tools like squirrel.dev actually build this like custom webhook wrapper around their cron job system. So basically cron jobs for JavaScript apps. Quarrel, not squirrel. That's it, quarrel. By Simon, not. That's why you were thinking squirrel because you combined Simon and quarrel. 
I did. There you go. But he built a custom wrapper around his webhooks to make it far much more easier. So it's more like every single webhook was just like a more like a lambda function that you could just call and be like, everything in this code block will run and will handle everything else. So I think that's something really, really interesting. And especially as you said, if you can add webhooks for things that don't have webhooks, that's super exciting. We'll have to check out Coral. That sounds very similar, right? So getting rid of all the overhead of, did we miss these webhooks? Do we need to pull to backfill them? Or do we have to you know, check to make sure they're signed correctly? We're eliminating all of that, much like it sounds like Coral is doing. Yeah, someone actually just dropped a thing I'd called jobscheduler.net in a Discord I hang out in. So there's a, another job scheduler one for you to check out. But yeah, we had Simon on almost like a year ago now on the show a while ago. And so I'm assuming it's still going strong. It was built for the next community first, not the Redwood community. But it does have implementations in all languages. What I thought was really good was that abstraction over webhooks, if that makes sense, because we could speak all day about webhooks. But that's another area that I think is ripe for innovation because it's just a bit too complicated when we live in this world of lambda functions of just like run everything in this function. And surely it should be easy to just say event A, run this code, event B, run this code. But obviously that requires JavaScript abstractions to be wrote into your API. So some open source library potentially. So there's a lot of work to do that as well. Webhooks is a super interesting area. I'll be really interested to see that solution. We're excited to roll it out. We think pairing a Postgres database with a complete events table paired with a client library. It really unlocks, you know, to your point, Anthony, if SQL is not your language of choice, of course you can use an ORM, which is fantastic. But then when you also have our client libraries, you can use native node, your language of choice to really work with and process and adapt the data to your needs. And we think it really begins to close the full use case that we're seeing all of our customers ask for. We've kind of begrudgingly, like we've had customers asking about these events and how they handle these webhooks and how they trigger these outcomes. And we've really taken this approach of letting developers really convince us of why they need it, how they need it, what it's going to do for them. We think this kind of close a really a compelling loop of being able to really make sure all the data that your company relies on from these third-party APIs is completely accessible to the developer natively. So we're excited to roll it out. And Chris, you're going to have to give us some of your proper feedback on it once we do. I love giving feedback to early tools. And just so everyone knows, sometimes I feel like a real bad critic is like, I've just looked at their tool and I've just ripped apart saying, this is awful, but it has good potential. So please come back to me. Because as a company owner myself, it's just what you want to hear. But people are like, you know, they would rather just never use the platform again, have them thoughts in secret of, oh, it didn't do this. So now I'm just going to walk away. A lot of the time it's like, yeah, but if you say I needed to do that, maybe begrudgingly, most of the time developers of the software would be like, yeah, we'll do that, you know, because more customers, more potential revenue. It's all business at the end of the day. We wanted to quickly get into what the rest of your team looks like. We see that you're currently hiring. There's a lot of JavaScript developers that listen to this. So if you want to plug your careers going, we'd be happy to let you. So the team is super small. It's just Eric, myself, and Kaiki, who is a full stack developer based out of Sao Paulo, Brazil. Kaiki is actually part-time right now because he's still in high school, but he graduates high school in two weeks. So we're so excited to have him on board full-time. 
Must be a smart high schooler. He's amazing. He's an extremely smart high schooler. He learned to code when he was 12. He didn't have internet at the time. So I'll let you fill in the gaps around how smart he is. But we are hiring and it's an incredibly exciting time to join us. Not only are we working on developer tools so our customers are other developers, but we have traction. We're already working with some great customers. We're pre-product market fit, but we're closing in on it. So for anyone that's entrepreneurial, you know, loves building tools for other developers and wants to kind of see a startup go through the iterations to close the gap on product market fit, this is the perfect time to join us. And did you take funding or are you bootstrapping? We took funding. We raised a pre-seed round from David Sachs at Craft Ventures. Oh, cool. Awesome. I feel like the odd one out here because all three of you are in California. So it's super early for all of you. And it's like 5 p.m. for me. So I think I got the better time today. We won't be here much longer. I'll be out of here in two months, hopefully. You know, the uh, the daylight savings transition has made early mornings uh, a staple. So it's been, it's been a great past couple of weeks. Fantastic conversation to wake up to. It's beautiful. I think that's about it. Is there anything else you want to say about the company, where people can find you, what you're interested in, anything else? The limelight is yours. You can find us at sequin.io. That's S-E-Q-U-I-N.io. Sign up. We have a completely free trial that's very flexible. So we don't have a free tier at the moment. It was very hard for people to understand our free trial initially. But please sign up. Give it a try. You can email us at any time, founders at sequin.io, and we'd love to hear from you. We're just getting started. So these are early days for us. So we're so excited about the opportunity to just tell you our story and tell us yours. Like We want to help you build something cool. So we're excited to hear from you. So as you heard, for all your feedback on this episode, just message founders at sequin.io. We don't need to hear it for once. (laughs) Yeah, just send it our way. It's been a pleasure to have you two on. I'm really excited about your company. I can't wait to see where it goes. And I really hope that it puts a flag on a brand new hill, as I can say, as this is a brand new way to do something because it's a really unique way that the more you think about it, the more it almost always makes sense to do it that way. We think so too. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. Really appreciate it. under there but i think you guys were very very succinct in your your answers and your descriptions so i think we covered pretty much everything people would want to know so yeah great to hear